So this morning we're going to be continuing uh, our semester studying apologetics, studying uh, defending the Christian faith. So uh, Jeff started us off two weeks ago with knowledge and authority in Christianity. Uh, Last week, Zach gave us a theology of truth itself. And this morning we're going to be talking about the question, where we got the Bible, where we got the Bible, specifically defending the preservation of the scriptures from the original authors to us today, which is actually one of the primary targets of many skeptics today, is uh, accusing uh, the preservation of the scriptures of being unreliable, saying errors have crept in as the scriptures have been copied throughout the years. So we're kind of going to go through three things today. We're going to first of all talk about how we get the Bible from God, obviously gives us his word, and then how does it get from the original authors through the 2,000 years of the church to us today, and then we'll make a final comment about uh, translations, about our English translation, right? the actual physical Bible that we're holding in our hand. So Let's get started. Obviously, we have to start uh, with the most central aspect of where we got the Bible. We get the Bible uh, from God, right? God reveals himself to us. We have this revelation from God where he reveals himself and his will. Now, before the fall in creation, this is super easy, right? Adam and Eve have fellowship with God. They have direct communication with God. Uh, when they look around at God's creation, uh, the, the general revelation of God isn't distorted in any way, right? They see clearly uh, God's beautiful creation. Clearly, God made these things. Uh, and so God's revelation is clear to man. But after the fall, Man loses fellowship with God, is cut off from God, so we no longer have direct communication with him, and what can be known about God through uh, his general revelation is distorted, right? Our sinful hearts look around the world. Instead of worshiping the creator, we worship the creation itself, right? Romans 1. So God's general revelation gets distorted, so there becomes this need for a special kind of revelation, a special kind of revelation. So we see different kinds of this. We see God actually appear and speak to Abraham or Moses, but then primarily, right, God gives us uh, the scriptures, right, his word, uh, or God gives us more accurately his words, plural, right? So when we say the Bible, and when we say God's word, we typically say it in the singular, right? We typically think of it in the singular, right? God's one word, And that might lead us to think that what we're actually talking about, what the Bible is, is the physical book itself, right? The physical book. But to be more specific, uh, what's actually God's word, what's actually the scriptures are the words in the book, right? It's not the physical book itself or the physical pages of the book we're holding in our hand. It's the words that are on the pages, right? All scripture is breathed out by God. So God speaks words, right, gives his revelation, speaks words that the original authors write down, but it doesn't become any more God's word, God's revelation, when they chisel it on, you know, the tablet or scribble it on a piece of papyrus or anything like that, right? It's God's words when he speaks them, right? God's revelation when he speaks them. That's what we're after. And this may seem, you know, super obvious, but it's an important distinction. What is scripture is God's spoken words, right? That's what we're about, Right, we're about the words that God speaks to his original authors, right? whether it's Moses directly on the mountain or by guiding Paul's thoughts as he's writing his letter to the Ephesians or whoever. They write down his words, his scriptures, and that's what's going to be preserved for us. So that'll be important later when we look at some of these accusations. Right? So the words of God are what we're after. That's scripture. So God gives his words, but then how does uh, it get from the original author's 
thousands and thousands of years ago to us sitting here in 2020 today. It has to be preserved. It has to be preserved. Uh, Before the printing press uh, is invented in the 15th century AD, if you want a copy of something, you have to physically copy it down by hand, right? So you have to actually take an old manuscript with things written on it uh, and take a new manuscript and copy the words onto a new manuscript, right? If you want a new copy, if you want something to be preserved. So for the first 14 centuries, for the Bible to continue, it needs to be copied like this by hand, okay? So we have copies and copies and copies that are being copied so the Bible can be preserved. So today, what we have of all of this, we don't have any of the original uh, manuscripts. We don't have uh, the original letter of Romans. We don't have, you know, the original uh, scroll of Genesis. We don't have any of the originals today. In fact, we don't even have copies, and we don't even have copies of copies. Okay, at best, what we have are copies of copies and copies, but actually most of what we have are copies of copies, you know, go on and on and on. That's actually the majority of what we have. So why don't we have these originals anymore? Why don't we have the originals? So uh, just the simple answer is the paper, the papyrus or leather that they're writing on just isn't meant to last thousands of years, right? Paper isn't meant for uh, preservation for years and years and years, so it would just get old and crack and it's not meant to be preserved forever. It's meant to be read and used in that time, right? So just to give you a frame of reference, has anybody seen the uh, Declaration of Independence like right now? So written in uh, 1776, being preserved by the best technology in the world or whatever, you know, Nicolas Cage could steal it. But besides that, it's, it's in that thick glass, right? And it's almost completely faded. It's kind of demoralizing to go see because it's just a, almost a blank piece of paper and you can't see the writing anymore, right? And that's written on parchment, which is an improvement of what the biblical authors are writing on. And even that is almost completely gone, right? So just to give you a frame of reference. So the originals aren't going to last forever. So for us to be able to read them 2,000 years later, we have to get copies, right? We have to have it preserved. Uh, There's other reasons we don't have the originals. Persecution is one of them. Uh, There's different forms of persecution in the early church. You know, they would actually, you know, kill you for being a Christian. Another way of persecution would be, you know, an emperor, if he wants to just mess up the church, he'll just exile the leaders of the church. So uh, all the bishops will get sent to the desert or something like that. Uh, And then another way uh, that the church would be persecuted is the Roman soldier would show up to your house and say, give me all of your Christian texts and they would destroy them, right? So that's another reason, just that was a big part of persecution, destroying Christian texts. Another reason we might not have them is the early church understands that God's words are what matter, not what the words are written on, okay? So if you're sitting in the early church and you have a a copy of the Gospel of John that's getting old, it's getting harder to read and things like that, and you get a new piece of papyrus or whatever, and you copy it down, and you now have a new uh, copy of the Gospel of John, you're not overly concerned with your old one because you have a new one. Right? What matters is God's words, and you have them. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? You have Scripture. You're not overly concerned with preserving this old manuscript that's not you know, harder to read because 2,000 years from now, Christians might want the oldest possible ones. You're like, oh my gosh, I need to put this in my you know, vase or whatever to keep it preserved. You're not as concerned. Right? Even today, if you have a book in your library that's damaged, 
You just buy a new one, right? You're not like, oh my gosh, unless it has some sort of sentimental value. You're not like, I need to put this water spilled all over it and I can't see it anymore, but I can't just get a new book, right? The old ones are what matters. No, you just buy a new book, right? So that's kind of the attitude of the early church as well. What matters are God's words, not the physical thing itself. So we don't have the originals. We don't have copies, but what we do have uh, is truly remarkable. The manuscripts that we do have are just, it's incredible. Um, so let's start with the Old Testament first. Actually, uh, for most of uh, the history of the church, we actually didn't have a whole lot of manuscripts for the Old Testament at all. Uh, the main reason for this is as Jewish scribes uh, would copy just uh, so, so meticulously down from one old manuscript to a new one, they had this elaborate system of counting letters both ways to make sure every line was so precise. And then they had such a reverence for the scriptures. They didn't want this old bad copy to be misread, right? If it's becoming illegible, someone might misread God's word and they don't want that. So once they copied and they were sure they had a new copy, they would actually burn uh, the old one so that God's word wouldn't be misread. So that does ensure that we have really, really accurate copies, but also ensures that we don't have a whole lot of old manuscripts. And so for a long time, all we had were old manuscripts from the ninth century AD, right? The Bible was written between uh, the 14th century and 400 BC, right? So that's a massive gap, but that's all we had for the longest time. This text that was called the Masoretic text because it was copied by these guys named the Masoretes, uh, but ninth century AD. So naturally such a huge gap would invite in a lot of skeptics to just kind of doubt the reliability of the text. But then uh, in 1946, uh, we discover the Dead Sea Scrolls. So in the caves of Qumran in Israel, next to the Dead Sea, uh, we find just this unbelievable discovery of Old Testament scrolls that date from uh, first and second century BC. So almost a thousand years earlier than what we had. So a much, much earlier date. Uh, but more importantly, when they took the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, and took the text that we had from the ninth century and they compared them, they were almost identical almost identical, which proved, which showed that the Jewish scribes who had been copying had been doing a great, great job. So um, my wife and I actually went to Qumran and we have this real nerdy picture of like the cave where the most of them were, it's like behind us and we're like giving them a thumbs up, super nerdy. So the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, show just this really, really reliable copying uh, that the Jewish scribes had been doing. So it really, really shows us the reliability of the Old Testament, gives us great confidence uh, in the accuracy of its preservation. Okay, so that's the Old Testament. The New Testament is a totally different story. So the New Testament is the best preserved writing from the ancient world, period. Second place is not close. Uh, the number of manuscripts that we have is overwhelming. So the Greek manuscripts alone, we have uh, 5,856 um, it used to be 5,844, but Daniel Wallace, who's a, is a, one of the world's best textual critic scholars, he actually works at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, came and spoke at a seminary that uh, I went to a couple years ago, and he came from Athens, and as he was giving this lecture about textual criticism, and he said, actually, you know, the official number is technically uh, 5,844, but I just came from Athens, and we actually found 12 more, so... You guys can update your, like we, we, we're still finding uh, Greek manuscripts. So that's how many we have just in Greek. We have over 10,000 uh, Latin manuscripts, early Latin manuscripts. 
the church, the early church is very concerned about the gospel going forth. So they want the scriptures to be translated to other language and go forth. Um, we have uh, between 5,000 and 10,000 from other ancient languages. And uh, from quotations of the New Testament and the writings of the early church fathers, we have over a million quotations, which I think is a conservative guess. So if you ever actually read uh, the early church fathers, if you were to footnote every time they either quote or reference the scriptures, you would barely have any text at all because the whole page would just be footnotes. Right? These guys have an incredible love for the scriptures. Most of them have it memorized. Uh, I was reading the other day Athanasius for a sermon or something like that, and he said, it says somewhere in the scriptures, you know, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he doesn't have Romans in front of him. He doesn't, he can't even remember where the source is from. He just says, this is somewhere, I'm sure of it. And then he quotes perfectly Romans 8, right? So they have this incredible love for the scriptures. So we have over a million uh, quotations from the early church fathers in their writings. Compared to other uh, classical Greek works, uh, they have around 15 copies around today. Not 1,500 or 15,000, 15. So if you stack that up, Plato's writings or whatever, that's about four feet. Uh, if you were to stack up all the New Testament manuscripts that we have, that's four and a half uh, Empire State Buildings, right? So much, much more than the average classical writing. Uh, so uh, we also have very early dated um, manuscripts from the second century, right? Within a century of the original writing, we have manuscripts of the New Testament. We also have uh, a completed New Testament manuscript, one whole New Testament from uh, early fourth century, around 330 AD, right? So very early manuscripts as well. So that's all the manuscripts that we do have. We don't have the originals, but what we do have is incredible Right, so as we're receiving all these manuscripts, all these Old Testament and New Testament manuscripts, what we do is we, have, uh, we, we discern from what we have what the original wording to the uh, original authors is. Uh, this is a study called textual criticism. Uh, Jeff gave an excellent uh, overview of this uh, a couple of years ago uh, where he went through just the study of textual criticism in every possible category. So as we receive, uh, we're going after the words, remember? So we have all these copies and we're attempting to reconstruct uh, the original wording that God gave. And as time continues, our confidence is just getting stronger and stronger and stronger, right? You would think that the further away we get from these guys, from the original authors, the less uh, confidence we would be able to have, but it's actually just the opposite. So for example, uh, even manuscripts that we've had for hundreds of years were able to read better. There's this one manuscript that we have uh, that's actually several pages. Uh, and 100 years ago or a couple hundred years ago, someone spilled water or coffee or whatever they drank all over it. And so half of it you can't read. You can only read half. So we've had this for a long time, but you can only read half of it. But now with the advancement of UV lighting or whatever, they can shine it uh, on the manuscript and we can read 100% of it. Right? So even as technology advances, all that's doing is aiding uh, in our ability to read these manuscripts. And we keep finding more. Again, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls is less than 100 years ago. Right? And it really, really uh, shows us the reliability of the Old Testament. Same with the New Testament. Let me give you an example. Uh, in 1844, a German scholar, which Zach told us all German scholars are bad, and then he listed a bunch of Austrians, um, Ferdinand Christian Bauer uh, argued that the Gospel of John uh, should be dated late, late second century, probably around 70 AD, right? And if that's true, that totally diminishes uh, the uh, 
reliability, the value of the Gospel of John, because it wouldn't have been written by John. It would have been written by someone random and stuck in the Bible and things like that. Uh, so it totally diminishes the value of the Gospel of John. And this became the dominant view uh, in European scholarship for 90 years. 90 years. No confidence in John. wasn't written by John. It was written in the late second century. 90 years. This is what everyone uh, believed and is convinced by. Until in 1934, uh, we discovered P52, Papyrus 52. And that's how we name manuscripts. We're super creative. What's it written on? Papyrus. What number is this that we found? 52. All right. That's what we're calling it. P52. Uh, this was discovered. This was a manuscript fragment about the size of a credit card. Uh, very tiny. And as they found it, uh, they sent it to three leading papyrologists. Again, a profession I didn't know existed. People who are experts in papyrus uh, just look at old paper all day and they're like, man, this is fun. This is what I want to do the rest of my life. Um, so the three, they send it to three different men to date it. What's this little fragment? What age is this from? Two of them said that this was uh, from the year 100 AD, and one said it's from 90 AD. And written on this tiny credit card size uh, fragment are these words. Then Pilate said to him, are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is the truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Does anybody know what book this passage is from? John, right? This is John 18, verses 37 through 38, found in this tiny uh, manuscript within a decade probably, of when John was originally written. One scholar says this would have been copied before the ink on the original letter was dry, which is obviously hyperbole, but showing how close it was. It totally disproves Bauer's theory that had almost for 100 years cast doubt over the Gospel of John. So this tiny credit card-like fragment sends two tons of German scholarship to the flames, Right, so we keep finding more manuscripts that only uh, make our uh, evidence stronger, our, 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 our trust in the reliability of the scriptures stronger, only growing stronger. So was the Bible beamed down to us in 2020? No, it wasn't, but our God is still sovereign over the preservation of his scriptures, right? The same God who uses fallible people to write his infallible word uses fallible people to preserve his infallible word. Right? We can trust in God that God has preserved it for us. So, those are just the facts about uh, the preservation of the Scriptures. Now, let's look at some of the uh, most popular accusations, which can basically all be boiled down to uh, skeptics saying, you know, this whole process that you just bragged about, blah, 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 that's so great. Now, uh, that's actually all not true because during this process, errors have crept in. There's no way 2,000 years later, after copies of copies of copies, scribes didn't mess up and totally change what the Bible said. So what we're reading today is nothing like what these guys wrote. That's, what, that's the main accusations. So see this quote by Bart Ehrman. Ehrman, or Ehrman, however you want to say it. Ehrman's the proper way. Um, he is a New Testament scholar. He's a Tar Heel at the University of North Carolina and by far, you know, the most popular critic of the reliability of the Bible. He said this in his best-selling book, Misquoting Jesus. How does it help us to say that the Bible is the inerrant word of God if we uh, if, in fact, we do not have the words God inerrantly inspired, but only the words of 
copied by scribes, sometimes correctly, but sometimes, many times, incorrectly. What good is it to say that the autographs, the original writings, are inspired? We don't have the originals. We have only error-ridden copies, and the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals and different from them evidently in thousands of ways. Okay, so that's the dominant thought, that's the dominant type of accusation, but we'll break this down into kind of the four main accusations. Uh, Accusation number one, we don't have the Word of God because we don't have the original manuscripts. We only have error-ridden copies of copies of copies, right? So as things are hand-copied, clearly mistakes are going to be introduced. Therefore, we can't know for certain what the Scriptures say. That's the idea. Accusation number two, those copies that we do have are much later than the original manuscripts, and therefore, we can have no confidence in the original wor- what the original wording said, Okay, so they're so far removed, the assumption is when you have this big of time gap, error is going to creep in. That's inevitable, right? That's the assumption. Number three, the biggest kind of uh, accusation, there are so many variants in our manuscripts as a result of incorrect copying that there's no way we have what the original authors wrote. So a variant is simply when you hold up one manuscript that we have with another manuscript that we have of the same passage and there's places where they don't uh, agree. So skeptics will say if you hold up all the manuscripts that we have, all those thousands that you just bragged about, there's so many variants there that it's impossible to know what the originals actually said. So just to give you a frame of reference, the Greek New Testament has 140,000 words, and there are 500,000 variants in the New Testament. That's actually updated. It was 400,000, and it's actually been updated to 500,000. Half a million variants, uh, and there's only 140,000 words. That's the third accusation. The fourth accusation uh, isn't really in the same line as the first three, but it's an accusation nonetheless. The earliest scribes of the church changed what the original authors wrote to suit their own theological convictions. So there's this idea uh, that Christianity, what we would call Christianity, and then every heresy from the early church, Gnostics, uh, you know, Arianism, Marcionism, Sabellianism, all these are kind of just grouped into the same bucket as just different versions of Christianity. And then our group of Christianity just won. We beat all those other guys because we changed the text. That's the accusation. Um, So, obviously, this can be a little bit unnerving, right? Especially when you look at the fact that they're saying some true things. We don't have any originals. We don't have copies, uh, even the original copies. And there are more variants and there are words in the New Testament. Uh, So, let's look a little bit uh, closer at these variants, because it's gained, I mean, at these uh, accusations, because it's gained a lot of traction in the academic world. Let's see if we can find an adequate response for them. Accusation number one, we don't have the original word of God because we don't have the original manuscripts. We only have copies of copies. Here's the first answer to that. It doesn't matter that we don't have the original manuscripts. Who cares that we don't have the original manuscripts because our word isn't, or our goal isn't to get back to the original stone or scroll or piece of paper. Our goal is to get back to the original wording. Okay, remember God speaks words that are written down, but it doesn't become more God's word when Moses chisels it, you know, on his Ten Commandment tablets, right? They're God's word when he speaks them, right? If I think John 1, in my head, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. That's still God's Word, even if it's never written down, right? So we don't care. We're not after the physical manuscript. We're after the words that are on the physical manuscript, right? So we can still have the words, even if we have copies. 
This is a very misleading uh, accusation. So let me give you an example. Imagine uh, I'm working in my storage closet upstairs, and uh, Claudia, my wife, texts me and says, uh, Zach sent a card to the house. I said, that's weird. What does it say? And she says, quote, remember not to screw up theological equipping this Sunday, right? So classic Zach encouragement. Uh, and so I think, oh my gosh, that's so great. Let me write that down. So I get a sticky note and put it on my desk. Remember not to screw up theological equipping this Sunday, dash, Zach, right? So I have now the original card that's at my house, and then I have a manuscript copy sticky note. Now imagine Claudia throws that card away because Zach's you know, serial killer handwriting is unnerving to look at. She throws that card away. Do I still have Zach's words? Do I still have Zach's encouragement uh, with a sticky note on my desk? Yes, I have his exact words. And they don't become less Zach's words because we threw away the card. Who cares about the card? Zach's the one speaking the encouragement, right? And I still have a copy. It's the same with the scriptures. We're interested not in the physical thing, but the words that are the inspired word of God, right? They don't get less inspired when they're copied, right? If we still have the words. So this accusation that we don't have the word of God just because we don't have the original manuscripts is either misleading or totally irrelevant, right? Who says we don't have the original words? We do, right? They've been preserved and copied. So it's pretty irrelevant, first accusation. Second accusation, uh, the copies that we do have uh, are much later than the original manuscript and therefore we can have no confidence in what the original wording said. So this copy that we have uh, is from the 7th century. That's 600 years after Paul wrote, uh, right? So there's no way that that's accurate, right? Of course, the assumption is as it's been copied, error has crept in. Uh, But that's a big assumption. First of all, all Christians for all of church history have known that the manuscripts we have are of a later date than the originals, right? Augustine, as he's pouring over his scriptures in the fourth and fifth century, knows that he has copies of copies of copies. And if you were to talk with him and be like, oh my gosh, Augustine, why are you writing so confidently? Your scriptures are just copies of copies of copies. He would say, I know. He'd say, well, don't you know that errors could creep in? And you say, yes, that, I guess conceivably that could happen, but that doesn't immediately make me doubt just because it's of a later date, right? Martin Luther and William Tyndale and all the reformers have copies of copies of copies in the Reformation, but they don't instantly doubt it just because it's of a later date, right? So why would something that all Christians have known for all uh, church history bring doubt to Christians now, right? Why would we doubt it now if everyone's known that for all of church history? That's just an observation. Secondly, Something being of a later date doesn't inherently make it wrong, okay? Something being copied later doesn't inherently make it wrong. Again, this is a strong assumption by skeptics, as if it's a given. So there are several things I do that are nerdy, uh, but one of them is I love uh, family ancestry, things like that. So I don't want to brag, but I've been working on a pretty sweet family tree for about a year and a half now. And so anytime I hear uh, that someone in my family has like family records, I freak out. Uh, So I heard this past uh, fall that my uncle has all these family records. So I went over to his house and I was reading, and I was reading about my great, great, great grandfather, William Smoot on my mother's side, Uh, William Smoot. And I was reading about his life and my uncle had written kind of a profile about him. And he's, as he's describing his life, he's talking about how he was in the civil war and how he was coming back home. And he writes this letter to his family, my great, great, great grandpa, and says, being sent home because troops need grain. 
And so it was in my uncle's description. I thought, wow, this is interesting. This will be a fun story. I can tell people my uncle was sent home because the troops needed grain. So I was like, I got to write that down in my own records. So I write down, oh my gosh, William Smoot, great, great, great grandpa, being sent home because troops need grain. Now, I don't want you to freak out, but what I wrote down is 160 years later than when my great, great, great grandpa wrote his letter. But it's the exact same words, right? So does the fact that my copy is 160 years, right, however many generations removed from my great, great, great grandfather make it inherently error-ridden? No, right? Again, this is a very strong assumption by skeptics here. Something being of a later date doesn't inherently make it wrong. Third accusation, this is the biggest one. This is the one that scares people the most. There are so many variants in our manuscript as a result of incorrect copying that there's no way we have what the original authors wrote. Again, 400,000 words total, half a million variants, okay? So this accusation is true in the sense that we have this many variants. We have half a million variants. That's true, but it's incredibly misleading. First of all, the reason we have so many manuscripts or so many variants is because we have such an incredible number of manuscripts, right? We have such a high number of variants because of all the manuscript evidence that we have. If we just had one manuscript from all of church history, guess how many textual variants we would have? Zero. Zero. So it's specifically because we have so much evidence that we have so many variants. If we had one, we'd have no variants, but we'd also have no way of testing the reliability of that manuscript. If two people are translating 1 John and you give one person two manuscripts to translate 1 John and another person 200 manuscripts to translate 1 John, who's going to have a more reliable translation? Second guy, right? His manuscripts might have more variants and stuff like that, but the foundation of his translation is going to be so much stronger, right? Who's going to have less variants? The first guy, but his translation is going to be so much less reliable because he only has just a few things to base his translations off of. So to say there's more differences, there's more variants in the New Testament than there are words, again, is pretty irrelevant. It doesn't really matter. If we had a billion manuscripts, we'd have more variants, right? In this way of thinking, the more evidence we accumulate, the less certain we can be about something, right? Which is backwards. The more evidence we accumulate, the more certain we are about something. It's because we have so much evidence that there are these manuscripts. That's the first thing. Uh, and this accusation will get a little bit less threatening when we look at the types of variants that there are. So let's look at the type of variants. Um, so skeptics will group all these half a million variants into kind of the same bucket as if they're all just as threatening to Christianity. They all just change the words of the scriptures, right? They're all the same. Uh, Bart Ehrman again says, we could go on for nearly forever talking about specific places in which the text of the New Testament came to be changed, either accidentally or intentionally. The examples are not just in the hundreds, but in the thousands. So again, he's saying all these variants, all 500,000, they're all kind of in the same category. But let's actually look at some of these variants. Over 99% make absolutely no difference to the text at all. Let me give you a common one. The titles of the books grow over time. 
The titles of the books grow over time. So Paul, when he's writing Philippians, he gets his scroll, he writes Philippians, but he doesn't put a title on it. He just writes Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, blah, 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 rolls it up, gives it to Timothy. He delivers it to the Philippians. Philippians read it. They love it. They make some copies with no title because everyone knows this is from Paul to our church. But then a couple decades go by and some more of Paul's letters are circulating. And so someone wants to be more specific. They put Philippians on the top. Oh my gosh, we have a textual variant. Philippians is now on the top. How are we ever going to know what the original words of God said when Philippians is on the top? And then a couple more decades go by and someone wants to be more specific. So he writes letter to the Philippians. Oh my gosh, that is like five variants per manuscript, right? Then they write Paul's letter to the Philippians. Oh my gosh, that's like six, right? So imagine how many, if the titles are growing over time, that's easy to spot as not in the original. Another type of variant is they would just add amen to every single New Testament letter. That's easy to spot as not in the original, right? So over 99% make no difference to the text at all. Over 70% are spelling errors that are, again, easy to spot. If I'm texting all the staff guys and I say, Jeff says the meeting is at 930, and Siri or Alexa or whoever in my phone auto-corrects it to J-E-F-F instead of G-O-F, how Jeff spells it. Uh, is everyone on staff going to be like, oh my gosh, who is this new person that's joined staff that's calling meetings? No, they're all going to know. I'm not even going to correct Siri or Alexa or whoever because everyone knows that's easy to spot. That's easy to tell. And it's the same with the scriptures. 70% are spelling errors. Uh, Dan Wallace, again, this leading uh, text critic, did an experiment to see how many ways in Greek he could write the, phrase, or the saying, John loves Mary. Right? In English, you can only say that one way, John loves Mary, because word order matters for English. If you switch it around to Mary loves John, that's a different sentence. But in Greek, it doesn't matter because you identify the subject of a sentence by the ending. Right? So you can write it in any different order that you want, and any Greek speaker knows, oh, that says John loves Mary. So he says, I wonder how many ways I can say this. So he switches around the word order. And then you add in the factor that sometimes the word the appears before proper names in Greek. So the John loves the Mary. Adds that, switches it around. Different spellings of John and Mary that all mean the same thing. He adds that, switches it around. After eight hours, uh, he got tired and his total was at 384 ways to say John loves Mary, where any Greek speaker will know exactly what that means. No one will be confused if they look at any of those 184. He got up the next day and kept going. The number rose to over 500. Uh, then he replaced the word, uh, just different verbs for love, right? In Greek, you have several different verbs for love. And he replaced those and the numbers go over a thousand. A thousand ways in Greek that you can say the phrase, John loves Mary. And if anyone who knows Greek looks at any of those thousand, they know exactly what it means. There's no confusion there whatsoever. And so, if you really look at these thousands of changes that Ehrman and the other skeptics are talking about, you would see that there's no significance at all. If there's over a thousand ways that you can just say John loves Mary, how many possible variants could there be in the New Testament that absolutely change the meaning zero percent? Tens of millions without changing the meaning whatsoever. So when Daniel Wallace finished his experiment, he said this, if we can say John loves Mary over a thousand times in Greek without substantially changing the meaning, the number of textual variants in the New Testament is meaningless. What counts is the nature of the variant, right? The type of the variance. So 100 or 99% make no, no difference at all. Let's look at some of the variants that actually do change the meanings of the text and could be in the original. This is the smallest category. Uh, so variants that 
change the meaning of a passage, right? If it's there, it changes the meaning than if it's not there. And we don't know if it's in the original or not. This category is less than one-fifth of one percent. Less than one-fifth of one percent is this uh, number of variants that actually change the meaning. Let's look at an example of this. Still could be scary, but let's look at an example. Mark 9, 29. Uh, disciples are trying to cast out a demon. They can't do it. Jesus shows up and he says this to them. This kind can only be cast out by prayer. And then the variant is and fasting, right? So and fasting could be in the originals. It could not. If it is, that means something different, right? You have to pray and fast. Then if it's not there, if it's not there, you just have to pray, right? But notice that doesn't destroy your faith, right? That's, that's a matter of practice, right? It's not like it says, Jesus is God, but a lesser God, or something like that. We're like, oh my gosh, if that's in there, that totally destroys our faith, right? No, it's prayer and fasting. And if you're involved in exorcisms, just do both. Hedge your bets, right? Do both. The longest disputed uh, passages, there's two uh, that you probably know, are the ending of Mark and the woman caught in adultery, Those are the two uh, longest textual variants that maybe in the original, we don't know. You'll actually see in your translations, there's most likely a, you know, note that says, we don't think this is in the originals, but we're not sure. So we've included it kind of with an asterisk there. Um, But those are both 12 verses long. The next longest one after those are, is two verses, is two verses. So you hear again, skeptics say, oh, a common textual variant, it's like the woman caught in adultery, but that's not common at all. That's not typical. That's incredibly long right? And here's the most important thing. Even in this tiny category, one-fifth of one percent of variants, no essential doctrine of the church is touched. No essential theological doctrine of the church is touched. Bart Ehrman even says this himself. Uh, He says, essential Christian belief uh, are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. This was in an appendix uh, to Misquoting Jesus, his famous book, where he was being asked questions in the first edition. And in the second edition, they took it out because it was uh, affecting sales, because he was admitting uh, no essential Christian belief is being affected by any of this, right? So our faith is secure, even in this tiny area of uncertainty, our faith is still secure. So that's the third accusation, very misleading accusation. The fourth, last one, early scribes of the early church changed what the original authors wrote to suit their own theological convictions. So even if they say, okay, we don't have the originals, but that doesn't really matter, uh, and textual variants, sure, we, we exaggerated that a little bit, but the early scribes changed everything. So none of that even matters in the first place, right? That's another accusation. Gnostics, Arians, Christians, all in the same group, but you Christians changed John to say Jesus is God and all sorts of stuff like that. So first of all, notice uh, this accusation starts with the assumption that uh, scribes deliberately changed the scriptures. Starts with the assumption that scribes did it on purpose, right? Which is backwards, right? I wouldn't come to you and say, prove to me that you're not stealing from every single person in your life. You would say, why don't you assume I'm a normal person and that I'm not stealing from every single person that I know. I don't have to prove to you that I'm not doing all these things. But that's what the skeptics do. They'll say, prove to me that every single scribe has no moral compass, has no integrity, uh, right? Doesn't care about his job and that they deliberately change the scriptures. Prove to me that that didn't happen. 
say, no, why don't we assume that a scribe acts like every other scribe throughout history and faithfully copies things, and then you prove to us that it's a deliberate change, right? That's a total backwards way of thinking. They need to prove uh, their position, not the other way around. But just for the sake of argument, let's say that the early scribes wanted to change all the scriptures, right? So there are these random groups, let's just say the Gnostics, and we're all just versions of Christianity. And what we are, right, our version of Christianity wants to change the scriptures, say we wanted to. Do you have any idea how hard that would be? Right? We don't just have early manuscripts. We have them in different languages. We have them in different countries. So that group would have to have the foresight to know when a scripture is being written, right? They'd have to track it down. They'd have to learn the language. They'd have to change it. Imagine there's a group in Jerusalem that wants to change all the scriptures. How are they even going to know Paul is in Rome writing 2 Timothy, right? He's not tweeting out, you know, a selfie halfway through, you know, 2 Timothy, LOL, or whatever, right? They have no idea of knowing and then how are they going to get there and stop it from being spread across Ephesus? How are they going to get there and stop it from spreading out, uh, translating to different languages and all that? Right? That would be impossible. Even if they could, say they even got to Ephesus, while there's only a couple dozen copies in Ephesus, it hasn't left Ephesus yet, they're not just destroying the copies, they have to change the copies. Right? So you have to show up to where a manuscript is, knock on the door, say, oh my God, I heard you have a uh, version uh, or a copy of 2 Timothy. May I read, please? I'm from Jerusalem. I'm a scribe. They say, oh, sure. They give it to you and you'd say, oh, this is great. Do you have some coffee? Can I have some coffee? Sure, thank you. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I spilled coffee all over your manuscript, but you're in luck. I'm a scribe. Let me copy this for you, okay? And then you'd have to, okay, Jesus is God. And you'd have to change, right? That would be impossible even if they wanted to, right? It would be impossible. But somehow, uh, as our evidence grows, uh, doubts have grown with it, right? There's always going to be a gap between God speaking his words to us and us receiving uh, his words, right? Dr. Peter Williams, who's the uh, leader of Kendall House in Cambridge, said, there will always be a gap. Even if we had a picture of Moses coming down the mountain, someone would say, what happened before he came around the corner? right? Even uh, if we had a picture of Moses, someone would still say, prove to me Moses didn't deliberately change the Ten Commandments before he came down the mountain, right? There's always going to be a gap. We can't prove that there's been no change, but we don't need to prove that there's been no change, right? We can say there's absolutely no reason uh, for there to have been a change, just like there's absolutely no reason to assume you're stealing from every person that you know, right? What we know about the history of preservation, the preservation of the Scriptures, is that it's incredibly stable, but the skeptics will look at this uh, incredibly stable preservation of the scriptures and they'll say, but right before your earliest copies, someone did something really sketchy. So, sorry, you can't prove anything. Again, that's totally backwards. It's a ridiculous suggestion, right? Our evidence continues to grow, but somehow skeptics, uh, or the doubt grows with it, but there's nothing we can do uh, about that. So, what can we conclude about the preservation of the Scriptures? First, we can have great confidence, right? Almost every accusation is simply pointing out facts uh, in a misleading way and then giving no explanation, right? It's like, uh, say, I, I came to you this morning and I said, oh my gosh, did you see the news story? And you said, oh my gosh, what news story? And I quickly look at my phone and I read you the headline. And the headline is, in an angry rage, son attacks mother, biting her several times in the face. You would say, oh my gosh, what a psychopath. And then I show you the picture of the event. The picture is this, <laughs> right? That's my little five-month-old that's teething, right? So I technically said true things, 
right? My son's a little angry there, and he's uh, attempting to bite my wife, but she's smiling, right? That's the least threatening thing imaginable, right? That's what this is like. People are just, skeptics just point out uh, factual things in a misleading way, right? We can have great confidence uh, in God's uh, preservation of the Scriptures to us today, right? We're only growing in our security, right? So, quick word about translation, and then we'll be done. Um, so now that we have, you know, the scriptures are, are translated or, or, or passed on, they're copied, and we have them in Greek and Hebrew, how do we get to uh, the English, right? They have to be translated. So I'll just say, first of all, uh, the English translations that we have are uh, stronger than ever, and they're just getting better, okay? So just to give you a reference point compared to other times in church history, uh, the King James Version was translated with seven manuscripts, uh, the latest of which was dated in the 11th century AD. Now we have 5,800 plus manuscripts that date back to the second century, right? That's a big difference. Uh, And not only that, uh, translations now are done by teams of scholars, right? Not just one person. So as incredible as uh, Jerome's translation of the Vulgate is in the fourth century, as incredible as Luther and Tyndall's translations are in the uh, Reformation, that's done by a man. Now we have teams of scholars that actually do the translating and then other teams of scholars that come in and read and check their translations, right? To check their work. So, uh, and on top of that, we just keep finding more manuscripts and technology continues to improve, right? So we can have also great confidence in our own uh, biblical translations that they're incredibly reliable today. And if you want to know more about this, again, a couple years ago, we did a whole teaching on bibliology and I think we have lessons of uh, modern translations, history of the English Bible, things like that. So hopefully by now, you're a bit more encouraged, right? You have a bit more confidence that our God is good uh, and that he is good to preserve his scriptures, right? He is in absolute control. As he's in absolute control of the original author's writing his perfect word, he's in absolute control of the preservation of his word, right? We do not have a blind faith, right, by any means. We can have great confidence in the mountain of evidence that we have that makes even the most serious accusation look silly, but our ultimate uh, hope isn't in the evidence of preservation that we have. Our ultimate hope is in the God who does the preserving, right? He's who our ultimate hope is in. He's trustworthy, and he is the one that has preserved the scriptures for us today. So let me pray, and then we'll have uh, a quick time of Q&A. Jeff will come up here and answer all your questions. Father, we thank you so much for who you are, Lord, that uh, your character has been made known to us in the scriptures, Lord, that we can trust uh, that you are good, right? Not only to give us the word, but to preserve it, right? You didn't give it to men in the past and then it faded away. You preserved it for us today that we might know you. Uh, You care about revealing yourself to man. You're the only God that exists and you come down to us, right? Every other religion is about man's pursuit of God. You come down to us. The biblical God comes down to man and reveals himself. So we thank you that you've done that and that you've preserved your word for us today. So we praise you and pray in your son's name. Amen.